0: Please pray with me as I pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this extraordinary word. We thank you for what we can learn from it, of your mercy to someone who denied your son, who failed in his love and faithfulness. Now, Father, we pray that listening... And seeing that Jesus is who he says he is, the one who reigns at your right hand, uh, we pray that we would know in trusting him, forgiveness for our failures and restoration to you. Help me to speak your word in my weakness truthfully and clearly and help us to receive it as it is, the word of the living God. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, If you were starting a movement trying to persuade others to believe what you believe, to stake their lives, their present and eternal future on what you believe, would you be happy to have the movement's most prominent spokesman portrayed not as people of insight and courage, but as obtuse, slow to understand and cowards? Would you want the chief spokesman, its principal preacher, portrayed as a failure, a moral failure, who would lie to save his skin, a failure as a friend, who would deny ever knowing the one to whom he had professed loyalty, someone who had compromised his integrity, failed to be the man he claimed to be. And if you were that chief spokesman, would you be comfortable with the story of your failure being told over and over again to have to relive the grief and shame of that failure repeatedly in its retelling? You'd be tempted, wouldn't you, even if for your own peace, let alone your reputation in the community of the new movement, to let that story just fade away, be forgotten, tempted even to put a spin on the story that would portray you in a better light. But as you heard in the Gospel reading, the early Christians didn't succumb to that temptation. At the heart of the Gospel, the Apostles preached, at its climax they preserved in all the written Gospels the failure of Peter, the first preacher of the Christian message, the chief spokesman of the early church, a pillar of the church, the failure of that Peter in denying his Lord to save his own skin, to be faithful to Jesus and his teaching. Wherever the gospel goes across the centuries, that story is retold. And yet you could have told the story of Jesus' suffering and crucifixion without it. You could move seamlessly from the trial before the Jewish authorities to the trial before Pilate without this interruption. Why make Peter's failure a prominent feature of the story? Because it's true? Well, yes, it's true, but not every true thing the apostles did is recorded or needed to be recorded. Oh, because the whole point of the apostles' witness, their preaching of the gospel, is to point away from themselves To have people put their trust in the Lord Jesus and not in themselves. Well, yes, certainly, but more. This true record of failure holds out in Peter's bitter tears hope. Hope in the betrayed, abandoned and denied Jesus for other failures. People like you and me who ourselves know failure. Moral failure where we have made a promise and not kept it or lied to save ourselves or shared in unkindness to another or crossed the boundaries of sexual purity or a failure of love, where we have denied to others what they could rightly expect of us, our time, our attention, our help, our kind words, where we have walked by on the other side too busy or important to stop and help, where we have cruelly shut others out of our lives or if we call ourselves Christians, a failure of faithfulness to Jesus, where we have professed loyalty to Jesus but then kept silent when he's mocked or slandered, gone along with the crowd in agreeing with what we know Jesus condemns, or shared in the practices or superstitions of other religions, knowing that other gods were involved, just to keep the peace, be accepted. If you know that failure, in Peter's tears you will find hope. Hope for forgiveness of failure so grievous that you might think it could never be forgiven. Hope for restoration when you thought your shame would always exclude you. Hope for a new life when the way you've been living has been revealed as a dead end. Hope in Jesus who, as you heard, did not fail, who is faithful to the truth, Maintains his commitment to the work the Father has given him and perseveres in loving those he knew would fail him, loving them even to death. Jesus, having been arrested, is brought uh, to the high priest's house for questioning, uh, and that seems to have gone through the night as more and more of the members of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council, arrive. A questioning that will conclude, as we know, with their sentencing Jesus to death and handing him over to the Roman governor who could alone impose the death sentence. The intention of the Jewish authorities is clear. They decided to kill Jesus even before he was arrested and tried. Already they conspired to arrest Jesus in a treacherous way and kill him. And now the questioning proceeds, verse 59, with that goal. They're looking for false testimony against Jesus so they could put him to death. They're seeking a legal pretext to do what they have already determined to do. And yet they are concerned, we hear, with the legal process. The Jewish law said that people could only be put to death on the testimony of two to three witnesses, and so they seek that testimony. But it isn't easy to find. But at last they find two who agree, claiming that Jesus said, I can destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Now that's promising for the Jewish authorities, but that's a claim both to messianic authority for only the Messiah who was said to have authority to purify and restore the temple and it also showed hostility to the present ruling order and its guardians Actually, these Jewish authorities trying Jesus. And it also seemed quite out of touch with reality, a vain and crazy boast for someone standing before them, friendless, powerless. But even this lying misrepresentation and malicious twisting of what Jesus had said, because In John, Jesus is recorded as saying, destroy this temple and I will raise it up, using the temple as a way of speaking of himself. You know, he never threatened to physically destroy uh, this temple. So even this twisting of Jesus' words wasn't enough and perhaps that was known. So it didn't seem to carry enough weight to allow the conviction they wanted. And because of that, the high priest then seizes the opportunity uh, to uh, ask uh, 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 the, the opportunity of this report of an indirect messianic claim by Jesus to ask him directly, are you the Messiah, the Son of God? Now Jesus, who had to this point being silent, the servant of Isaiah 53, who in the face of oppression did not open his mouth, now responds with a claim that goes well beyond what the high priest suggests. See, the high priest asks, are you the Messiah, the Son of God? The Messiah, the Christ, the anointed Son of David, is spoken of as a Son of God in Psalm 2 and 2 Samuel 7. He is an exalted figure. The focus of the fulfilment of scripture is a great ruler. And yet the Messiah could be thought of as a purely human figure with a purely earthly reign, restoring Israel and the boundaries of David's kingdom. Yet Jesus replies to this question, You have said it. That is, Jesus is agreeing. He's not denying he's the Christ, the Son of God, but he's doing it in a way that allows for distance between what the high priest thinks it means to be the Christ and Jesus' own understanding of what it is to be the Christ. You have said it. And then Jesus adds, But I tell you, in the future you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Now this is an extraordinary reply from one on trial for his life at the mercy of those before whom he's standing. Jesus uses his favourite term, son of man, to refer to himself. But by quoting Daniel 7, he's making it clear that he considers himself the glorious, exalted son of man. But Daniel seven's the second quote. Firstly, <coughs> he speaks of himself as being seated at the right hand of power, alluding to Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Jesus says he will be seen to be the Lord who has a heavenly throne in the presence of the Lord with all his enemies subject to him. And then he says he will be seen to be the one coming on the clouds of heaven, quoting Daniel 7. I continued watching in the night visions and suddenly one like a son of man was coming in the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was escorted before him. He was given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that those of every people, nation and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. That coming of the Son of Man is to the Ancient of Days, not to the earth. See, Jesus is saying... He will be seen to be exalted by the Father to a heavenly throne and an eternal dominion over all. Both these references used by Jesus speak of Jesus' exaltation, of God giving him a heavenly dominion, of him sharing in the Lord's reign and authority over all peoples, far more exalted than the high priest imagined. And notice Jesus' confidence. In the future, it says, you will see. Now, the CSB makes it sound like it's the distant future, sometime in the never-never. But Jesus is more confident than that. He's talking about the near future, as we see in the NIV or ESV translations. From now, you will see. From now on, you will see. Jesus is confidently speaking of what will follow his death, his resurrection and ascension to the Father's right hand, witnessed by his pouring out of God's spirit on his people. And that's what happened. At the end of the gospel, the risen Jesus speaks of himself as the one given all authority in heaven and on earth, that is, as the enthroned Son of Man. In the first Christian preaching in Acts 2, Peter quotes from Psalm 110, verse 1, the verse Jesus uses here. Quotes it as now being fulfilled in Jesus exalted to the right hand of the Father. Jesus, even as he is falsely accused and humiliated, knows he is doing the Father's will and is confident in the Father's faithfulness that everything written about him in the Scriptures will be fulfilled and he says his accusers will judge and judges will witness his exaltation. You will see. Now how will they see? Well, not in the sense that they themselves will be witnesses to the resurrection, but they will hear the testimony to the resurrection and they will see evidence of the spirit being poured out by the ascended Jesus on his followers in their bold preaching. Of the resurrection. These judges will live to see the great reversal, where the one they are judging is exalted now as their judge. But their hearts will be so hardened that they'll invent the story of the disciples coming to steal Jesus' body rather than believe the truth of the apostles' witness to the resurrection, seeing they will not see. Now Jesus' reply is an extraordinary reply and it's too much for the high priest and handing him the opportunity to do what he has wanted to do from the outset, he says he has blasphemed. Blasphemy, a crime that earned the death penalty. And the high priest says they don't need witnesses for they themselves with their own ears have witnessed Jesus' blasphemy. And if Jesus is not Emmanuel, God with us, what he said is blasphemy. In saying those scriptures will be fulfilled in himself, Jesus has associated himself with God, has said he shares the authority of God, which God will exercise through himself. For a creature to associate himself with God, that is to bring God down to the level of a creature, to slander God by associating him with creaturely images, well, that is blasphemy. And so they say he deserves death. Jesus is condemned, abused, mocked for telling the truth about himself and his reign, for being faithful to his father's plan and purpose to exalt him through his draining the cup of God's wrath against sin on the cross. Jesus is condemned, abused, mocked for loving the father and for his determination to save his people and in their condemnation and mocking for those who read the gospel well they know jesus judges are already confirming the truthfulness of jesus for he's already said that he'll suffer many things from the chief priests elders and scribes so there's jesus before the jewish court being condemned for his truthful confession but now the focus shifts from the court to the courtyard. We've already been told that Peter has followed the arresting party, taking Jesus to Caiaphas. He's gained access to the courtyard through, we're told in John's Gospel, John speaking to the doorkeeper. Peter has come to witness, it says, the outcome. He went in and was sitting with the servants to see the outcome or in the ESV, the end. And it's not just the outcome of the arrest he's there to witness. Already, Peter's confidence in Jesus is faltering. You see, Jesus has said repeatedly that he would rise. He said that very night that he would rise and go before them to Galilee. Jesus has said that this night will not be the end, but Peter is here to witness the end. The end of Jesus, the end of his hopes, the failure of Jesus' declaration that the kingdom was near. And while he's there warming himself in a group of servants around a fire in the courtyard, a servant girl approaches him and says, you were with Jesus, the Galilean too. Jesus was surrounded by servants of his enemies and facing the full weight of the rulers of the Jewish people. Yet... He was faithful. He made the good confession. Peter, by contrast, is now confronted by a servant girl, the person who is the lowest, the least powerful in their social hierarchy. What will he do? Well, at first he tries to avoid. I don't know what you're talking about, but that's only a temporary reprieve. He came in with John, known to the high priest's household. He has a distinctive northern accent, and so they challenge and so the challenge comes again. A- another woman saw him and told those who were there, this man was with Jesus, the Nazarene. Well, this time he lies forcefully, with an oath, lies to deny any association with Jesus, his companion of three years. The one he has said he will never abandon, with and for whom he has said he was willing to die. But he lies. I don't know the man lies to save his own skin. And you might have thought it was just a slip-up, caught off his guard, a misspeaking he could correct when he regains his composure. But actually it's a settled, determined response driven by fear, fear not just of those present, but fear that he had come to the end, that there was no future with Jesus. He's so keen to dissociate himself from Jesus in the eyes of those there that When they challenged for the third time, you really are one of them since even your accent gives you away. He invokes a curse on himself to bolster the conviction of the truthfulness of his response. What's Peter done? Well, Peter has done what Jesus said would bring eternal condemnation. Jesus had warned his followers that everyone who acknowledges me before others I'll acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever denies me before others, I will also deny before my Father in heaven. Peter has now denied Jesus, not once, but three times, deliberately. And he has abandoned Jesus' teaching about telling the truth, about not making oaths, but letting your yes be your yes and your no-no. Peter's used his oath. For the very purpose Jesus condemned, to deceive. In a short time, Peter's moved a long way from being Jesus' follower. Denial and disobedience have compounded. He's settled on going his own way, living by his own rules, what seems right to him, doing what it takes to survive on his own. And that might have been the end for Peter. Compromised, disappointed. Bitter. Perhaps in years to come, excusing his lack of loyal lovers, we excuse our own failures of love and integrity by saying he had no other choice, was under pressure, exhausted, oh, that this wasn't the real Peter. That might have been the end for Peter, but then he hears the rooster crow. He remembers the words Jesus had spoken in response to his boastfulness just a few hours before. And it's like a slap in the face. And in an instant he sees what he has done. He sees himself for who he is and he weeps. He weeps for his boastfulness. He weeps for his failure, his failure of love, his failure to be who he wanted to be, brave and faithful. He weeps for the shame of denying one who had loved him. He weeps because he knows Jesus already knew what he was like and still dealt with him kindly. Now they're tears that some of us have known, aren't they? When we can no longer hide from our faith, when we know we have let down one who has loved us by our immorality or faithlessness, by our persistent unkindness, our lies and evasions. We weep. Yet Peter's tears, these bitter tears, are blessed. Blessed because he's been brought to the place where he can no longer deny, qualify or evade the truth of what Jesus has said about him as we so often try to do. See, Jesus said Peter would deny him, and he has, and Peter now knows that he didn't have the strength in himself to be faithful, what Jesus knew. Oh, Jesus said Peter's spirit would be willing, but his flesh weak, and that's clear. Peter now knows that he's not capable in himself of doing the good he might will to do. And yes, way back in chapter 16 when Peter had rebuked Jesus for speaking of his coming death, Jesus had said that his thinking was just too limited, preoccupied with human concerns, not God's ways. And he knows now, Peter knows now, he's in no place to judge God's will. See, Peter now had to admit Jesus knew him better than himself spoke the truth about him, admit that he couldn't dictate how Jesus should act, could not qualify himself for a place in Jesus' kingdom, was not strong enough or able enough to save himself, was not different from the others who failed. Now, is that a blessedness you know? The blessedness of being no longer able to deny, evade or qualify the truth of what Jesus has said about you because Jesus has spoken about you and I in the gospel. Oh He said that our hearts, the core of our being, our will and mind are the source of our sin, of the things that make us unclean, unacceptable in God's sight and our lives a misery, our hearts. He said that our flesh is weak, that we might be full of good intentions, but our frailty and sinfulness means we aren't able to fulfil them. Oh, he said that you're a fool if you listen to Jesus and do not put what he says into action and that if you seek to gain your life at the cost of following Jesus, to be like Peter here and do what it takes, regardless of what Jesus has said, to make yourself in your own eyes happy, secure, fulfilled, whether that's through pursuing money or sex or power over others. Jesus has said you will lose your life. Now, they are hard things, aren't they, for Jesus to say, almost unbearable, especially if you're accustomed to thinking of yourself as good, as someone who's capable of securing your own happiness, giving your own life meaning by living according to your own rules. It's hard, isn't it, to hear instead that by your wisdom, your choices unaided, you are damning yourself. How can accepting that Jesus speaks the truth about us be blessing for Peter or for you. It is a blessing because when you can no longer hide from the truth of what Jesus says about you, you are free to turn to the truth of what Jesus says about himself and embrace it. That he came to save sinners, moral failures like you and I who repent. That he is the good shepherd who seeks and saves those who have lost themselves in their sin. That he says to the weary and burdened, come to me and I will give you rest. Oh, when he says that he has died, given his life as a ransom to free you from judgment, the judgment your failures deserve. And yes, what you have heard him say to Caiaphas, that he is the one who is exalted to God's right hand with all authority, authority to forgive and judge Authority to forgive even those who have failed him willfully, like Peter. And that actually is the second reason Peter's tears are blessed, because in confessing the truth of what Jesus has said about himself, Peter, they pointed Peter to hope, even as he is convicted of his failure, hope in the truthfulness of Jesus' words. You see, in the same conversation in which Jesus had said Peter would deny him, Jesus also said he would rise from the dead, and that the events of that awful night would not be the end. And there was more hope for Jesus, knowing what Peter would do, still included Peter in the ewe. But after I've risen, I will go ahead of you to Galilee, includes Peter in the you whom he expected to meet. The word of Jesus that so wounded Peter in convincing him of his sin is the word that gives hope, hope that his failure might not be the end for him. For the living can forgive. But it is Peter's only hope. If Jesus didn't rise, he would be left in bitter sorrow, ashamed and broken man, facing failure, with all these excuses for his failure, excuses he could no longer believe. But Jesus did rise just as he said. And we know he hadn't finished with boasts for shame Peter, Peter who disobeyed and denied him. Risen, Jesus appeared to Peter, first of all amongst the apostles. And later the risen Jesus had a conversation with him, recorded for us in John 21. A painful conversation, a conversation though that assured Peter his sin was known and forgiven and that he was restored not just to the disciples but to the service of the Lord he loved. This is the last chapter of John after the resurrection. When they had eaten breakfast, Jesus asked Simon, Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said to him, you know that I love you. Feed my lambs, he told him. A second time he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, he said to him. You know that I love you. Shepherd my sheep, he told him. He asked him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved that he asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Feed my sheep, Jesus said. Now, that was a tough conversation for Peter, that threefold direct, personal Simon, son of John. Do you love me? But it is kind of Jesus. The conversation lets Peter know Jesus knows his threefold denial. Jesus knows he's done it. But Jesus doesn't let it stay an unspoken secret. He brings it into the open so it's no longer an issue between them. And he overcomes Peter's shame by including Peter, giving him a respected place amongst his followers by restoring Peter to trusted service, to care for the sheep for whom the Lord Jesus has laid down his life. And notice the question that restores, do you love me? Not do you know what a worm you are, how badly you have failed. Tell me why I should have any time for you. Not, oh, are you really repentant? Not, can I be confident you'll do better next time, but do you love me? Me, the one who has died for you, the one who has graciously received you back, forgiven you for denying me. And he's not even asking about the strength of Peter's love, just its presence. And in his answers, Peter abandons his confidence in himself to put it wholly in Jesus' hands. He doesn't claim, verse 15, to love better than others, just to love.
1: He doesn't even
0: think that Jesus should take his word for his love, but leaves it to Jesus to judge. Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Peter's trust and hope now are in Jesus himself and Jesus' verdict on him in Jesus alone. And the Peter who did exactly what Jesus warned he should not do, deny him, the Peter who disobeyed Jesus' word, used an oath to lie to save his own skin, the Peter who could have lost his soul being justly denied by Jesus on the last day is forgiven and restored. His shame dealt with. And Jesus can do this because he went alone, abandoned to the cross, condemned by his human judges, and having died for our sins, is now the exalted Lord, he said he is. The Lord who forgives, not just Peter, but all who love him. Love him because they know, like Peter, the truth of what Peter wrote, that in suffering his unjust punishment on the cross, our Lord Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that by his wounds we would be healed. Love him, because if he speaks words that wound our pride and brings us to tears by convicting us of their truth, it is to heal and restore us, to turn us to him who can wipe away our tears forever by his forgiveness and generous mercy. And because of that, I want now to talk to, in a sense, four kind of groups of you. Firstly, I want to talk to those of you who have not yet accepted the truth Jesus speaks of us, the truth that your heart, your will and thinking is the problem, the seed of your sin, and that you are unable to save yourself. I want to say to you it is perilous to ignore Jesus' diagnosis of our problem. It's perilous to think like Peter that you can dictate to Christ what he should do and accept. Perilous to have confidence in your own strength to keep doing what is right. Perilous to think you are worthy on your own because of who you are and what you bring to belong to Jesus' people. By not accepting what Jesus says about you, you are laying a foundation for a prayerless self-sufficiency and setting yourself up for a grievous fall that will risk moral and eternal ruin, you're opening yourself up to think that you're superior to the struggles of others, and you are denying yourself a knowledge of the depth of Jesus' grace and kindness to you. You see, Jesus was right. He speaks the truth. Jesus' human judges were wrong. Oh, Peter was wrong when he boasted of his own strength. Jesus tells the truth, so change your mind about yourself so you can change your mind about Jesus. And now I want to talk to those of you who accept the truth of what Jesus says about us, but perhaps don't know its goodness, the blessing of being convicted of the truth of what Jesus says about us. And it is a blessing because in times of failure, When you reproach yourself, you know Jesus knew already what you have come to see now of yourself and that his love for you is not conditional upon your performance but on his grace. It's a great blessing. Oh, a blessing because it nurtures the humility that depends on Jesus only and so will cling to his word as the only true guide to life throughout life. Oh, it's a blessing because it brings the humility that doesn't think it better than others and so is free to love, not condemn others in their weakness. It gets the ugliness of pride out of our life, a blessing because teaching you to have no hope in yourself for salvation and putting all our hope on Jesus and what he has done, it actually makes you secure in salvation for Jesus will never fail you. Accepting the truth he teaches us about ourselves opens the door to a humble, thankful, persevering, secure Christian life. And thirdly, I want to talk to those who are sitting here this morning and think they are like Peter on that night, conscious they've done or are doing the very things Jesus has warned us not to do, conscious that they disobeyed something Jesus clearly commanded us not to do, whether in lies or lust or greed or hatred. Like Peter, you might have deceived yourself into thinking at the time that it would keep you safe or it would make you happy or it would keep you from the loneliness you fear, maybe even believed it was the only thing you could do, but now you know the grief Peter knew, that grief of failure, of having wronged the one who loved you, the grief of distance between you And your Lord. And Satan may have sowed the thought in your mind that you could never be forgiven. Your knowing sin is so shameful you could never look Jesus in the face, that you have no hope for the intimacy with your Saviour you once knew, the joy of serving Him that once was yours. That may be you this morning. Well, God's Word says Peter was forgiven, Peter was restored, not because he was special but because the Lord is gracious, rich in mercy, and on the cross he has borne all our sins. God's word says you can be forgiven like Peter. Do you love me? is the question the Lord Jesus asks. Hear him and turn to the one who has loved you. Let him forgive and restore you. And finally, to those of you who can identify with Peter who have known over the years both the grief of being convicted by God's word of sinful failure and the joy of gracious, undeserved restoration, maybe you just want to forget the pain of that failure. Well, don't. Ignore the discomfort and keep telling the story of your failure and restoration. Keep telling it firstly to yourself so that you will live thankful for grace in wonder every day at the generous and patient love of your Saviour for you and so that you will keep living a humble, chastened life that is quick to forgive and restore those who fail you and would rather die than disobey Jesus again and be willing to tell the story to others, for it honours Jesus like Peter's story, telling them that the gospel of Jesus that wounds, that convicts of sin and tells the truth about ourselves is also the gospel that heals, that banishes shame, that humbles, to exalt as God's beloved children. For it also tells us the truth about Jesus, that he knows us as we are, yet loves us, that he is gracious beyond our imagining, that he has the authority to forgive and restore for he reigns at God's right hand and that he says to the wounded, the weary, those grieved by their sin, even by their sin against him, come, come to me and I will give you rest. Let's pray. Our gracious heavenly Father, We pray in your mercy that you would convict us of our sin. Help us not to be blind to it. Help us not to be lost in it. Bring us to grief for wronging our Lord. And in your great mercy, as you do that, bring us to trust that he is the one who can forgive and will forgive, who will restore us and welcome us, who will take our shame away and include us forever in his loved people. We ask this out of your great kindness in Jesus' name. Amen.